Well, good morning, Branch Church. Everyone here, all of our church family online, it's a blessing to be with you all this morning in the Lord's house. So somewhere between 471 BC and 221 BC-ish, there was a man who lived named Sun Tzu. He was an ancient Chinese military strategist, and he wrote a treatise called The Art of War. Have you heard of it? So many people have. And in the book, in this treatise, he details principles to how to win any battle. And he talks about things like this, knowing your enemy and knowing yourself. And he says this, if you know yourself and you know your enemy, you need not fear a hundred battles. And then he qualifies it. He says, but if you know yourself and you don't know your enemy, for every victory you get, there will also be an equal defeat that goes along with it. He qualifies it one more time. He says, if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you will succumb to every battle. And so for him, knowing yourself and knowing your enemy was absolutely huge in the outcome of a battle. And then he gets into this, and this is where I really want to draw your attention. He talks about the baseline strategy for any warfare. If you had to, in one word, give an answer to what is the baseline strategy for any warfare, what would you give? Maybe something like strength, numbers. He who has the most numbers wins. Maybe it has to do with money. He gives this word deception. He considers deception the baseline strategy for any warfare. And then he, he explains a little bit. He says that if we are near, we must make our enemy think we're far away. If we're far away, we must make our enemy think that we're near. If our force is coming, we have to appear inactive. And I read that and go, I cannot help but think about the devil and his followers and think that has got to be their baseline strategy for warfare because they don't have strength over God. They have zero wisdom. They have no ground, no victory. But what do they have? Deception. So what do we do with such deception? Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4, and he's going to help the church to better understand and engage this. And I'm going to oversimplify it, but we'll unpack it today. He teaches this. We are to continue in the faith, exercising ourselves toward godliness. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. When it comes to deception, there's at least three things that I see here in these first six verses. The first one is this. We have been clearly warned. The Holy Spirit has expressly said this deception will come. Where did he actually say it though? Here's the fun part. We can't actually find a verse where it says, thus saith the Holy Spirit in this exact way here. 
And so I love the thought of George Knight here. He actually goes back and says, you know who, do, who we do find saying this? Jesus. You go to something like Matthew 24, verse 11. Jesus says, false prophets will appear and will deceive many. Mark records it, Mark 13, verse 22. False Christ, false prophets will appear and deceive many. I'm sorry, will deceive even if possible, the elect. Jesus clearly warned of deception to come by these false Christ and false prophets. It seems there might be this idea that the spirit is expressly saying the words of Jesus again and just reiterating that. I could be wrong here, but it seems to make the most sense since we can't find an exact scripture unless that scripture hasn't been recorded. Now the spirit says in latter times that this will happen. When are the latter times? It's right now. It is right now. The latter times are between Jesus's first coming and his second coming. When Paul writes, he speaks future latter times, but it's a futuristic way of speaking of the present as well, because he goes on to describe two ways in which they're actually doing it at this time. We're not waiting for latter days. No, it's already happening. These things are already occurring where deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons are coming. Now, why warn us? Why the warning? I don't know, maybe at least twofold. One, so you're not deceived. When I was in high school, just after high school, we used to play No Limit Texas Hold'em Poker. Any fans? And we used to play at a friend's house, and I, instead of putting my cards back in the deck, would keep one, right? You slide, but you keep one, and I would stick it under my kneecap like this. Anybody done that? And so now when I get my two new cards, I actually have three cards to play with. So I actually have a more opportunity to win. Now, if you knew I was doing that, how would that change the game? Yeah, you'd be like, dude, get out of here. We're not dealing with this. It is good that we know that deception is coming and it's already here. So we're not having a fast one pulled over us. Secondly, why does he tell us this? Maybe so we're not shocked when people fall away from the faith. People who once confessed Jesus no longer do. We'll be saddened. We'll be heartbroken. We will pray for them, but we won't be shocked. We won't be knocked off our horse. I can't believe us. No, we, we knew because the spirit has expressly warned us about these things. Second thing we learned about deception is that human agents will be involved. Human agents will be involved. The devil and his followers will go out of their way to sway people to become their disciples. And not just their disciples, but then their apostles whom they will send out to go do and to teach these things. Paul tells us two things about these people. They will be hypocrites speaking lies. A hypocrite is someone who is a stage actor. They're here one way at home. They go out into the world. The world is their stage. They put on a mask and ask completely different. And in this case, I wonder, do they realize they're hypocrites or do they not? Scripture feels like it leads me to believe they know Practically, I look out there and go, I, bet, I think some know and some probably don't even know. Secondly, their consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. In other words, they have lost the ability to really discern right and wrong. They've lost the ability to really feel it. Their hearts, in other words, have become hardened into this teaching in which they are now following and probably now promulgating, being apostles of and going out to the world. And the devil has done this with millions and millions of people, and even the leaders I think about in history, such as Muhammad, Buddha, Charles Taze Russell, 
creator of the Jehovah's Witness, at least the origin point of it, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, and tons more have come through history and have deceived millions upon millions of people away from the true Jesus and his true gospel. How sad that really is. Now, when you think of the devil or demonic teaching, what picture would you think of? Maybe a little red devil with a bony finger? I'll get you, my pretty. <laughs> actually, what you should think of is not that, but, not, but human faces that are actually moving it forward. So that really nice person with a really nice, cheerful face and demeanor, they could very well be bringing demonic doctrine and deceiving spirits. And it's something for us to be aware of and to know so we are not deceived as well. The third thing we see here about deception is that they twist what is good from God. You see, the devil's not a creator. He's a perverter. He takes what is good and he twists it and he doesn't want you to have it. It's so ironic. If People might think, if I become a Christian, there goes all the fun. There goes all the good. God's withholding good from me. That is completely false. God is the creator of good and the giver of it. The devil would take that and pervert that before it would get to you or twist it so you can't have it. And I think about the good gifts today that he is twisting. The good gift of gender. Gender is a wonderful gift. He made you male or he made you female. And when he made you that, it's a blessing. You get to enjoy that. You get to worship God in that, in the image as he's made you that special snowflake that there's no one else like you. And yet he's taking that and what happened? He's confusing people like crazy. From the day you were born, you were boy or girl. You were biologically male or female. Your chromosomal makeup shows it. And yet he's got people going crazy in their minds. We are gonna see, and we're already seeing it. In the next decades to come, people are gonna turn around and they're gonna be upset. Why did you lie to me? Why did you let me do this? It's one thing for adults to mess themselves up, but I think we can all agree when you start messing up kids, please, you gotta stop now. And so we need to pray that people's eyes would be open to this good gift that God has given them. I think of also the, the good gift of, of children. Children are a good gift. Can I get a witness? The more I walk in life, right, you see the things that really matter, things such as your marriage, things such as your children and your family, and I just can't think of anything better to do. You know, I put it up there. Having kids is so wonderful. And yet the world, how do they feel about children? I'm speaking very generalized, so, so bear with me as I do that. They see children, what? The nuisance? A clump of cells put together that I can discard for my own sake, for my own whatever whim and what I want? Now, there are real challenges and issues that women might have to face in pregnancy, but overall, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who are just discarding children as if they're nothing. Don't tell me the devil's not in that. It is twisting the goodness of children. It is so heartbreaking to see, and there's so much to pray for. God has given good gifts. Let us not, let the devil not twist them in our lives. And so how do we know what these good gifts are? Well, he tells us in scripture. He says, for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused or nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. And he gives the reason why. For it is sanctified by the word of God. 
when he says it's sanctified, in other words, it's set apart, it's written in scripture. That's where we know where the good gifts are. And that's where we need to know so they're not twisted to us. So we need to know the good gift that God has given us of creation, of gender, of children. We need to know the good gift of salvation by grace alone, the good gift of justification because of what Jesus has done for us, the good gift of the Holy Spirit and so on. And when we know these gifts, we will not let the devil twist them in our minds or in our lives. Amen? Paul, as he progresses now, is going to lead us towards this main action here for the church in, in light of this. He says, but reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little. Man, what a bummer, huh? But godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that is now and of that which is to come. In light of the deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, Timothy, you, and he's gonna command the church to do it in verse 11, exercise, train, discipline yourself toward godliness. But first he says this, reject profane and old wise fables. Reject these speculative, legendary, unhistorical, not true stories. Don't waste your time. Take your effort and you go exercise and train yourself toward godliness. What is godliness? It is a devout living for God. It is to become more like Christ and to be conformed more into his image. Put your effort there. Anytime you're going to work out, you probably want to know the benefits before you do it, right? If I'm going to get on that Peloton, is that what it's called? Peloton bike? What's it going to do for me? I want to know how many calories, what's it going to do? How many muscles is it going to work? If I'm going to do burpees, what's that going to do for me? If I'm going to do push-ups, squats, whatever it may be. Paul is so encouraging. He tells us the benefits. What are the benefits of exercising yourself toward godliness? It is impact in your life today, tomorrow, and I, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it for eternity. Somehow, when you're being conformed more into the image of Christ, it will impact all of your days and every relationship and every area in which you live and function in. Who doesn't want to sign up for that exercise program? That's amazing. Yes. Exercise is hard to start, right? That initial, it's hard to start. But once you get going, it's hard to stop. He says this, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. He really wants to drive home. Don't doubt this. This benefit is absolutely true. It's so true. Verse 10, for to this end, we both labor and we suffer reproach. We work our tails off and we even take people's insults. We believe in it that much because we trust, better translated, we hope. We are hoping in the living God. Hope is not a wish that I just hope it's, something happens. I hope she calls me back. I hope he thinks I'm cute. No, it's not like that. Hope biblically, it is a concrete future expectation that's gonna happen. Paul, they work hard, they suffer insult because we are hoping in the living God who will actually bring these things to fruition. He's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. He's the savior in a potential sense, the only savior, but the actual savior of those who believe. He says, Timothy, these things command and you teach. And as leaders, we do this. We encourage people to get in the gym and to train themselves toward godliness. Now, what good is a exercise motivation if I don't give you practical exercises? Well, what should I do? We're in the gym. I'm pumped up. I watch your motivational video. Which machine do I get on? Which weights do I pick up? How often do I do that? 
Following in the same kind of a metaphor here, Paul is going to give Timothy exercises he wants him to do, and we are going to glean from this on things that we can do today. Verse 12, he says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Timothy, you're young. He's prob- How young do you think he is? Nobody knows for sure. Rolling dice here. Most scholars think he's in his 30s. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. So here's what I want you to do, Timothy. Exercise number one for you. Be an example. Work towards these five areas. When you speak, the way you act, how you love, how you are believing, and your purity, your moral purity, and how you go about your life. Do these things well, and the message will not be stopped. People will receive it, and they will be blessed because of it. Don't let your youth, your age, be a hinder to the message and the grace of Jesus Christ. What do we, what, what exercise can we take from this? And here's what I say. Let us grow, devote ourselves to become the character of Christ. If he is commanded to be this example, we too can be that example as we seek to become more like Jesus, as we read about him and watch him in scripture and ask for God's grace to take on these attributes that God has so graciously given in scripture. I was thinking about it um, earlier this week, um, how you might exercise and practice this, obviously in your relationships as you engage with one another, but even in like that pregame, right? Even before you go to work or before you have a conversation, you're processing, how can I do these things? Sometimes we can walk through conversations in our head. I'll say this, they'll say that. And then we can get kind of fleshly as we're doing it and maybe a little selfish. And it's like, okay, stop. How can I be more like Christ? How can I prepare myself to speak like Christ, to respond like Christ, to love the person like Christ? I think that is game-changing exercising we can do in our minds as we're going through trying to be like Jesus. Verse 13, here's a second exercise he gives for Timothy. He says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Timothy, I want you to read. That is publicly read the scripture. In this time, not everybody had a Bible. Manuscripts were few. You had to come to church or someone who had the scriptures to actually hear them. He wants them to publicly communicate. And not just that, exhort. That means call them to believe it. Call them to obey it, to follow after it. And doctrine here describes teaching. Unpack what they don't understand to make sure that they get it. Timothy, give attention. In other words, devote or occupy yourself to God's revelation being public, understandable, and that people would follow after it. And I think for us, exercise number two, let us occupy ourselves with God's revelation. In other words, his word. Of all the things God wanted you to know, this is what he wanted you to know for sure. He put it here in his word. What he wants you to understand about the beginning and creation, how things went south and bad, how he has tempted to fix it, or it has fixed it, I should say, through Israel, through the coming of the Messiah, how he's brought in the church and how he will bring things to a final consummation. Everything he wants you to know about himself, how to walk in his grace, he has given it to us here. How could we not occupy ourselves with this? I would venture to say that most people in most churches probably do not regularly read their Bible, if at all. 
Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. <laughs> it can be a struggle. And we might, week on, I'm crushing it. And then like three months later, oh man, I should really pick it up again. We want to occupy ourselves with this. Because if we don't, we're not renewing our minds to see through the framework in which God has actually made this world and saved it. We're not actually having our minds set on the words he's given us. And scripture tells us, Romans 12 too, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind's gotta be here. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things above. See it from God's perspective. How do you do that? You have to be here. You may not always understand what you read and that's okay. You'll probably walk away with more questions than answers. Happens to me all the time. Sometimes I read to study. Sometimes I read to meditate. Sometimes I just read a verse because I feel like I need it. For you, it might be helpful to set a time, five minutes a day. For you, it might be helpful to set a goal, one chapter a day. For you, that might kill you. Don't do that. You might just need the heart of, I just want to know you, God, and I'm coming to know you in this moment. Please help me know you. Even if it's one verse is all I can seem to get in, get it in because that one verse is better than not. Let us occupy ourselves with God's word, not just Sunday, but Monday through Saturday. You want to see change and transformation? Get his word in your heart and ask God for the strength to live according to it. Verse 14, exercise number three, he gives to Timothy. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Now it's my understanding that God gives the gifts. God has arranged the body of Christ just as he wanted them to be. So it's my understanding that the men didn't like, okay, we're gonna give you this gift and then put their hands on and like zap it into them. I don't necessarily think it happened that way. I think this is more of like an ordination, more of a confirmation of the gifts that God has given to Timothy. And what gift is that? Seems to be teaching leadership of some sort as he's being put in charge of leading this church. Exercise number three for us, use your spiritual gifts. When I first became a Christian, this was a life-changing teaching. 1 Corinthians 12.1, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed about what? About your spiritual gifts. When you become a Christian and you are born again, you are giving something, 1 Corinthians 12.7, to manifest the Holy Spirit. I think it's more than just a natural gift. I think it's more than something you had your whole life. There's something new or a new way where you're able to show the Holy Spirit in your life. And that's the reason for the gift. I remember being in the school of evangelism and we went on a, a trip to Catalina, this wilderness trip. And we hiked to the top. And one day we had to do this 24 hour solo where you're by yourself, sort of. You could like see people a hundred yards away and see this guy over there. And sometimes you look at each other, but you're pretty much by yourself, right? I'm under this little bush, journal and a Bible. I read a bunch of Revelation. I read a bunch of Genesis. I read some Ecclesiastes and I'm praying, what are my gifts? What am I supposed to do with my life? And it's just crickets. It's nothing. I don't feel nothing. I don't hear nothing. I'm trying to understand this walk of, walk of God with Christ. I'm saved like a year or two, a couple years, I don't remember. And then we go back to the camp and they're like, one word, tell us about your experience. And I was like, roller coaster. And they're like, no, one word. And it was like, okay. <laughs> It was like, no, something more positive. I'm like, well, that's what it was. You know, like, what do you say? It wasn't until months later where the, the, the gifting that I felt that God gave me started to stir and started to become a reality. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't a letter in the mail. 
No one even told it to me. It was something that God gave me and God led me. And I felt like, hey, step out and try it. And God has been gracious and faithful this whole time. And here I am, you know, some 15, 16, 17 years later doing it. God has given you a gift. Ask God for his grace to understand, to see what that is and to use it. I don't think he'll deny that request if you want to use your gifts for his glory. Verse 15. Meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. He does not give Timothy exercise number four. What he tells him is, repeat exercises one through three. Take pains with these and cultivate these in your life. Man, going to the gym once is not so bad, right? Doing one set, I can do that. What's really hard about working out? Going back. Going back again going back to fourth week and the fifth week and the sixth week, that becomes really hard doing another set. And it's so easy. Oh, we'll just talk. Oh, today will be an off day, whatever it will be. And he tells them, you need to be on these. Give yourself entirely to these things. What things? Timothy, I want you to be that example. Timothy, I want you to give your attention to God's revelation. And Timothy, use your gifts. And I think these are three areas for us where we can continually exercise ourselves to knowing Christ and being like him to occupying ourselves and knowing God and his word and to using your gifts and you will thrive, you will grow and we will all be blessed because of it. Verse 16, he says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The last thing he gives him, it's not so much a new exercise as it is where to exercise. Where do I want you to exercise? in the faith. You stay here, know yourself, know the faith, stay in there, don't walk away from this. In other words, continue in the faith. For us, here's what I'll say. When you exercise, exercise in the gym of accomplished salvation. When we go to the gym, it's God's gym where he's already saved. And when we work out, we are working out which he's already given us, which he's already accomplished. We are merely now becoming more of what he said we already are as his children and being justified. Amen? Don't you leave and go to the gym of works. Don't you leave and go to the gym of Satan. Don't you leave and go to the gym of self-improvement. You stay here in the gospel and you work out there. Amen? How do you not be discipled by the devil? How do you not become his apostle? You remain in Christ, discipled by him, growing in him and exercising yourself toward godliness. Amen? So the question, the application is not if you will exercise, how will you exercise? And I'm going to leave you for a minute or two to think about that right now. Journal it, write it, pray, and then I will lead us together in praying over this. Let's pray together and ask for God's grace as we respond to the message today. Father, thank you first and foremost for the accomplished salvation you've given us in Christ. Thank you for the warning of the Holy Spirit through your scripture, and we ask for the grace to heed the warning and to continue in the faith, exercising ourselves toward godliness. Lord, I pray for every one of us, you would help us to work out in the gym of accomplished salvation and to keep going back and to keep going back and to stay there and to work out. Lord, help us, help each individual here with what it looks like for them in particular to exercise, to train. Lord, let it be an encouraging thing 
Let us encourage one another in these things and let true growth and transformation happen. I pray above all the things, just as a pastor, as a brother and a friend here, Lord, that you would bear fruit. I pray for fruit. We abide in you, Jesus. Bear fruit to the glory of the Father. We do pray, amen.